Topic 13. Second Paper of 20th Century Negro Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. 20th Century Negro Literature. Topic 13. Second Paper by T.T. Fortune. Second Paper. What Should Be the Negro's Attitude in Politics? By T.T. Fortune. Timothy Thomas Fortune, the subject of this sketch, is an author, a journalist, an agitator, and a lecturer. Mr. Fortune's grandmother was a mulatto, and his grandfather a Seminole Indian. Thomas was born of slave parents in Florida in 1856. His father took an important and active part in the reconstruction of Florida, being a delegate in the Constitutional Convention that framed the present Constitution of Florida, and a member of the first five sessions of the reconstituted Florida legislature. During the Ku Klux Klan period, which followed, the father of Thomas had to stand for his life, which he manfully did by preparing his house to receive the night marauders. The father finally moved with his family to Jacksonville, Florida. Here young Thomas soon found a position as a printer's devil, which was the first step to that high position which he now occupies. He left his printer's case for two years in order to attend school and to work in the Jacksonville City Post Office. In 1874, he was appointed mail route agent between Jacksonville and Chattahoochee, but he was soon promoted to the position of Special Inspector of Customs for the 1st District of Delaware. A year later, 1876, young Fortune entered that school which has been an inspiration to so many Negro youths, Howard University. After two years' study in this school, he returned to the printer's trade. While in Washington, he married Miss Smiley of Florida. In 1878, Mr. Fortune returned to Florida to try his hand at school teaching. After a year's experience at this work, he again returned to his first love, the printer's trade. But this time he went to New York City. Of course, the other compositors objected to working with a nigger. But by the manly stand of the publisher, Mr. John Dougal, the nigger remained, and after a short strike the white compositors were glad to return. Mr. Fortune's real career as a journalist began in 1880, when, with two friends, he began the publication of The Rumor, which, after two years, was changed to the New York Globe. After four years, the paper was forced to suspend. Mr. Fortune immediately began the publication of The New York Freeman. A year later, 1885, the name of the paper was changed to The New York Age, of which Mr. Fortune is still editor. His writings are, however, not confined to the editing of his paper. He is the author of several books, but Black and White and The Negro in Politics are perhaps the most noted. Mr. Fortune was the first to suggest the Afro-American League, an organization in the interest of the Negro race. He was the president of the first convention of this league, which met in Chicago in 1890. His address as president of the convention was a scathing arraignment of the South. Mr. Fortune was also elected chairman of the executive committee of the National Afro-American Press Association, which met in Indianapolis, Indiana, in 1890. The National Negro Business League was the outcome of a conversation between Booker T. Washington and Mr. Fortune. Mr. Fortune was elected chairman of the executive committee of the National Negro Business League, which met in Boston in 1900, and also at its meeting in Chicago in 1901. Mr. Fortune is, as might be suspected, a Republican in politics. 
In the presidential election of 1900, he took an active part in the political canvass of that year. He spoke in Indiana and in Missouri, advocating the re-election of President McKinley. The whole energy of his life is devoted to the interests of the Negro race in America. He wields a sharp rapier. He is the complement of Booker T. Washington. Each is doing his own work in his own way. The one supplements the other's work. There are some questions which, it seems to me, need no discussion. Because the truths in them are self-evident, and yet so perverse is the human understanding, that unanimity upon any subject of common interest is rare in social ethics. And by social ethics I mean the philosophy of organized government in all of its multifarious life. How intricate and perplexing these questions are! Even the uninitiated intuitively understand, although they cannot explain them, while ignorant and learned alike wrangle and often fight over the means to reach ends upon which there is no disagreement. There is, therefore, no phase of the Afro-American problem upon the proper solution of which there is not a substantial agreement among members of the race. The processes by which the solution shall be reached are the basis of the disagreements and discussions, which often defeat the common wish and aim. What should be the Afro-American's attitude in politics is a sophomoric rather than a practical question. What he should do at a given crisis is answered by what he has done ever since the right to vote was conferred upon him by the adoption of the war amendments to the federal constitution. Neither threats, fire, rope, nor bullet has been powerful enough to swerve him from pursuing the course made mandatory by his self-interests. He may have pursued this course by the intricate process of reasoning employed by educated men, or of intuition employed by the unlettered. The fact remains that his attitude has been one of sympathy and helpfulness towards those who were unmistakably sympathetic and friendly towards him, and as unmistakably antagonistic and troublesome to those who were antagonistic to him. With him, as with the rest of mankind, self-preservation is the first law of nature. What his attitude in politics should be now will be what it has been, governed absolutely by his self-interests. There will be nothing gained in the proper education and comprehension of the subject under discussion by holding up holy hands of horror at the statement that selfishness, pure and simple, has governed and will govern the attitude of the Afro-American in politics. The purists who prate of the common interest and loyalty to the flag as the first and highest duty of the citizen are entitled to their view of the matter. But the fact remains, and is true of the people of every ancient and modern government, that self-interest will govern the actions of the voter. One of the components which is discriminated against and oppressed by legal enactment through popular clamor will invariably produce substantial unanimity of thought and action on the part of the pariah against the common interest, and in the last analysis against the flag itself, as the emblem of governmental discrimination and oppression. The helots of Sparta and the Jews under the pharaohs were of this sort. The Jews in Russia and Germany and the Irish in Great Britain are modern examples. The first concern of every man, and of his own race, is his own concern. He will oppose those who oppose him, whether as individual or state. He will look to his interests first, and to those of his neighbor afterwards. The Afro-American is just like other people in this, as well as in all respects, despite the puerile contention of some, even of his own household, that he is not as other men. He will not love those who hate him, nor pray for those who despitefully use him although enjoined to do so in thunderous tones from very pulpit in Christendom. 
and therefore the afro-american's attitude in politics will be governed as it has been by his selfish interests and why not the banker's attitude in politics is governed by the policy that serves his selfish interests best the manufacturer's attitude is the same the same rule of conduct governs all men in their social and civil relations to the state in a republic government by party is the fundamental basis of it there must be parties or there can be no government this is equally true of democracies and limited monarchies the primary is the basis of party government his selfish interests of whatever sort make it necessary for every citizen who wishes to conserve those interests to belong to some one party unless he is permitted to enjoy the rights and benefits of the primary or party referendum he cannot hope to enjoy the rights and benefits of the party of his choice enjoy them to their fullest extent for the right to vote which does not carry with it the right to be voted for leaves a citizen in a voiceless condition as to those specific interests in which he is concerned and which can only be secured from the state through the action of his party no man can speak for another as he can speak for himself hence in every party men and special interests such as railroad bank manufacture and the like interests habitually seek to put in control persons who will represent them speak for them and vote for them upon any question of legislation which arises it is because of this that there is great rejoicing among afro-americans when any man of theirs is put forward for his party in any official capacity whatever and it is because of this that so few of them have been and are put forward wherever an afro-american is found supporting by his lung power and ballot a party which denies him participation in its primary basis of party government then you have found a man who does not know what his attitude in politics should be and whether he should be pitied or despised must remain a question for each individual to decide the democratic party is the only party in the united states which denies to the afro-american this basic right in party government logically enough it is the only party in the united states which has always sought to prevent him from enjoying the rights of the elective franchise the right to vote and to be voted for and which has necessarily to justify this policy always sought in every conceivable way to degrade his manhood to the brute standard a voteless citizen is always a social and political outcast a voteless race in a composite citizenship will always constitute a problem more or less dangerous to the state enemies fostered in the bosom as cleopatra's asp only to wound to the death it has been the way of the world since the dawn of history it is creditable to the good sense and the manhood of the afro-american people that they have constantly recognized and acted upon the theory i have here laid down as the consistent one in politics their attitude has been manly and consistent they have stood by their friends and defied their enemies even when their friends have been lukewarm or brutally indifferent and this has been the attitude of their friends since eighteen seventy through good and evil report they have refused to be seduced from their allegiance to the party of freedom and their enemies have wrecked their vengeance without hindrance so that the attitude books of every southern state bristle with a code of laws as infamous and oppressive as the slave code but that does not affect the principle in the least and the principle is the thing it is the essence of all life he who clings to it though he may die as the poor indian has done deserves and receives the respect of mankind when it has been said of him that he was corrupt purchasable unreliable in politics and that the franchise should be denied to him by fair or foul means 
because of this by the ku klux klan terrorists or red-shirt brutalists sufficient answer to it all in my mind has been that if he could have been seduced from his best interests from his friends and party politics without violence towards him none would have molested him or made him afraid that is a self-evident proposition in partisan ethics we do not terrorize and shoot and defraud people who vote with us no the afro-american has instinctively distrusted his political enemies even when they came to him bearing grapes in their hands and honey on their tongues his attitude has been one of manly protest wherever he was allowed to vote or made to sulk in silence and indignation and here has been and here is the rub when you cannot coax a man against his will as jonathan did david or purchase his birthright as jacob did esau if you have the power you terrorize and shoot him into compliance that is what the political enemies of the afro-american have done and are doing but patient as the ass and with the faith of job which passes all understanding he sticks to his principle of self-interest and waits and the good proverb says all things come to him who waits i believe it and if every man of the race had the alternative of being shot in his tracks for clinging to his principles or life eternal for deserting them the part of manhood and honor would be to stand up and be shot as a matter of fact thousands upon thousands of afro-americans have been shot to death by their political enemies since eighteen sixty eight and perhaps thousands more will be shot in the same way and for the same reason and by the same heartless enemies before the nation reaches the conclusion that an afro-american citizen should have as much protection under the federal constitution as any other citizen with a white skin despite the fact that the whole matter is largely one of state control and regulation when cancers get on the body politic like this of disenfranchisement and debasement of an entire element of the citizenship they are usually cut out as that of slavery and its exceeding horrors were steadfastness therefore and the faith that moves mountains and patience which overcomes a world of wrong and injustice will bring the reward as it has so often done with the race in the past the reward is perfect equality under the laws of the federal government and of the several states but our attitude must be one of absolute fidelity to the priceless sacred trust of citizenship which comes to us out of the agonies of the greatest war of modern times if we be true to ourselves the great republic will be true to us in God's way and time. End of topic thirteen. Second paper. Recording by Chris Pyle.